We are going to go into a mini-series today. I say mini because I'm just looking at two weeks, and I'm really in my mind thinking about the next three weeks leading up to Easter Sunday. As many of you know, Easter Sunday, April 17th, we'll be gathered at Neville Arena. It's Neville now, not Auburn Arena, Neville Arena on Auburn's campus. And so you can kind of feel the sense of expectation of spring, and we're leading up to Easter weekend. So I thought, let's gather our hearts and minds around a singular idea for the next few weeks. We've got Palm Sunday in two weeks, but the idea I want us to look at in the scriptures is a word called Selah. Can you say Selah out loud? So this is a word that you can say many different ways and be correct. It's a Hebrew word that even people of that tradition don't really know how to define. Selah, Selah, Selah. You could say it many different ways depending on where you're from in the States. I say Selah. Look at the person next to you. Tell them Selah. I just want you to get practice. I want you to get comfortable with it. This is a word in the Old Testament that scholars are totally divided about what it means. It's in the Old Testament over 70 times. The vast majority of those occurrences happen in the book of Psalms. And what's generally agreed upon is that this is a word that stands alone, that signifies a pause for reflection. I don't know if you know this, but there is a soundtrack to the Bible called the book of Psalms. 150 songs and poems that exist to exalt God and lift our eyes to the heavens. And you'll see this word pop up again and again and again. And it's generally agreed upon that what the word exists to do is to tell the reader or the singer or whoever is observing it to stop and pause and not blow right through what they're saying or reading. And Selah means, hold on, look at what you just said and make sure you totally were able to grasp everything that just happened. It's become synonymous with rest in the Christian faith. When you hear it, you think about, okay, I'm I'm running myself a little bit too fast, that too much is happening right now, and I need to stop and pause and reflect and gather myself. And so when I say Selah, I'm talking about a word that initiates rhythm into the Christian life. Do you know that the life you were created for is a life of rhythm? It's a life that ebbs and flows. It's a life that has certain demands in certain seasons that create the need for rest and recovery, that there's an urgency to the Christian life, but there's also built-in recovery that when on either end of the spectrum, these two things get out of balance, so do you. And for the vast majority of us, it happens when urgency overrules recovery. We got a generation of people who are becoming burnt out, living at levels of anxiety and levels of stimulation that no human being in the history of the world, other than God himself, who became a man, Jesus was created to live at. You are not created to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You are not created to know everything that you know or be as stimulated as you are based on the technology and the culture that we live in. But there are seasons, and this is where I I want this series to come a little different when we're talking about rest. There are seasons that call for elevated levels of focus and energy. It's all about developing a rhythm of knowing when you're in one of those and how you need to come down and build the discipline in your life to actually rest and let God fill you again. I'll give you an example. This past Tuesday in my life, 10 out of 10 in regards to the energy required. For me, for Courtney, it was 100 out of 10. Okay, so Tuesday, March 22nd was our due date. And I woke up that morning shocked because my wife was not next to me. And if you don't know anything about my wife, love sleep. 
Like very rare, even in pregnancy, very rare for her to not be next to me. And so I wake up, it's five o'clock in the morning because I, I generally get up early and, and she's generally still there. Not to say that, that me getting up earlier is good because every time I see her in the morning, she does spend her time with the Lord. So I'm going, okay, she might be praying. She might be out there just, you know, extra holy in, in the presence of God. So I walk outside of our room. I look and she's in her seat where she has her time with the Lord. No Bible in hand though. She's kind of like moving back and forth and she's like, my water broke last night. I didn't want to wake you up because I want to make sure you got enough sleep. Yeah, I'm that spoiled. It's, it's bad. I was like, oh, thank you, you woman of God. Um, so she's like, and by the way, when you watch someone's water break on TV or in the movies, that's generally not how it happens. It doesn't happen like all at once. And whoa, I'm in a restaurant. All of a sudden there's water everywhere and we got to go to the hospital. That happens sometimes, but generally it happens slowly and over time. And so it's been all night. She's like, my contractions are 10 minutes apart. We'll go to the hospital later today. Nothing urgent right now. My mom's coming in from Atlanta. You take the girls to school and we'll figure it out. I'm like, cool. So I, I, I take the girls to their preschool. I come back home and Courtney is standing in our driveway visibly frustrated. And she's like, my contractions are not getting faster. They're still 10 minutes apart. And I'm not like, I, I feel like we're going to have to wait till later today. And even though our, our baby's showing up on her due date, which is a blessing in and of itself, but like every parent, we're just those that assumed it was going to happen earlier. And a lot of you are the same way. You're like, yeah, hey, we thought it was going to happen earlier. And then a week turned into two weeks. And then it was like, please God, get this baby out. So we're like, we're already feeling like, okay, we've been wanting this to happen for a while. So her contractions are not speeding up, no rush. We know we're going to the hospital later today. And then all of a sudden, at our house, her contractions go from 10 minutes apart to five minutes apart to every minute on the minute. And it goes from, man, we're not even gonna go to the hospital until tonight to we might be having this baby in our living room. <laughs> Which if you know me, I'm not the guy. I'm, I'm like, there are certain dads in this room who you might be called to step into that moment and step up. That is not me. I am like, woman, you keep that baby in there. We are going to the hospital. So we get in my car. We take off. Speed limit optional. Straight to EAMC. And I mean, and so we pull in, this is hilarious. We pull in and I'm like, I'm dropping you off at the ER door because I, I've never seen my wife in this kind of pain. And obviously we've had two other babies, but this, this just feels totally different. Like this is happening really fast. I'm like, I'm gonna drop you off. I'll park the car and then come out and get you. And she's like, no, I don't want us getting separated. Like, let's just find a parking spot. Y'all at 9.45 a.m. in the morning at EAMC, no parking at all. <laughs> so we park over a quarter of a mile away and we make this walk where every 10 steps, my wife is like, hold on, another one, bowing down, having a contraction as we're walking into the hospital. I'm going, this is all happening right now. And in my mind, I'm going, you're gonna remember this for the rest of your life, but you've gotta stay so focused right now. And how do we make it into the hospital? We get in there and, and, and with a level of urgency with the hospital people who are so kind and gracious, but like, this is, I think this is really happening, but she's like, I, I don't know, like maybe we're not like all the way there. A nurse takes one look at her and goes, you are nine centimeters dilated. This baby is coming right here and right now. Y'all, we got to the hospital at 9.50 a.m. Mercy Jane was born at 10.24 a.m. No epidural, that was not an option. No, nothing. Why am I telling you this story? Because my wife's amazing, number one. Number two, it happened this week and it was, it was incredible to witness and be a part of. But number three, I can tell you, 
the level of stimulation and anxiousness and paying attention in that moment. I mean, this was at an all-time high of adrenaline that I'm experiencing meeting my third daughter and just like going, I can't believe all this is happening at once. The reason why I tell you that story is I believe that there are moments in life and seasons in life that call for a level of focus and energy that are unlike any other season. And I actually don't believe that that's ungodly. You see this in the life of Jesus. I just believe that if you told me, hey, you're gonna have that level of adrenaline and that level of stimulation demanded of you every day of your life, you would hear that and you would go, that's insane and not possible. But yet, to a certain degree, because of our culture and because of technology, that's the level of stimulation and being overwhelmed that the vast majority of us are living in and trying to get healthy in. That you go, no, that's a, that's a one-time thing. That's, a, that's just a moment. No, 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 no. I believe that we are so overcommitted and overwhelmed and overworked and have so many options for where we can put our focus that not only is anxiety creeping in, But our connection to the Son of God, the reason why we are created, is being compromised on the altar of the culture of 2022, telling you you can't ever stop. It's not an option, even if you try. So I see this in my life in so many different areas, but even the word Selah. If you've ever read the book of Psalms and you've seen that word and you know what it means, just question, do you stop? Like, Do you read that and go, hold on, I'm supposed to stop? and actually do it, or if you're like me, you read it and you go, I'm supposed to stop, but I can't today. See, I can't today because I put my quiet time into this short little window right here that I have all these other responsibilities and other demands on my time and other options that are actually more attractive than spending time with God, at least they are to my flesh when I wake up in the morning. And so I'm just gonna blow right through the limitation. And even though I know I'm supposed to say la, I know I'm supposed to stop and reflect, but I'm just gonna read right past that line and see what's in the rest of it and make sure I got it in to have my quiet time and check the box and move on with my day. See, if you're anything like me, We blow past limitations without even realizing that God gave them and demanded them. We ignore Sabbath. We call that an Old Testament concept and go, no, 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 no. See, they didn't have Steve Jobs. Like, they didn't have the level of availability that we have today. And every God-given limit, it is the tendency, especially for me, to go, you know what? I'm just going to, I know I'm supposed to. But I'm just going to ignore that for today and blow past the limitation that God has given me. And I'm telling you, what's on the backside of doing that too many times is a relationship with God that you don't even recognize and a state of your soul that has gotten so unhealthy without you even realizing how you got there. What we are talking about, everybody look up here, don't miss this. What we're talking about the next couple of weeks, this is not a therapeutic collection of messages on resting more. This is not a, hey, you need to fit in a time alone with God among everything else you have going on. I believe, personally, this is the greatest threat to discipleship in our day. And I don't, I don't say that exaggerating at all. I believe the greatest threat to becoming more like Jesus that you have is the temptation to distract yourself into oblivion, to overwork and spend your life missing out on the one relationship that you were called to live in submission to that impacts everything else that you do. This is not a small deal. 
I believe this is the fight for us as the church of Jesus Christ in 2022. And so when we're looking at this, we're not just addressing it as a problem, but we're also going to talk about realistic changes. Changes that you and I need to make to our rhythms in order to live according to the way of Jesus. And it is going to be more painful than it feels like a massage. Do we assume that being burnt out and being tired mandates a vacation where we kind of just let our shoulders back and chill and let God be God? But sometimes being still and letting God be God is the hardest, most painful thing you can do when you want to grab the reins of your life again. We're going to look to the word of God, and it's going to free us, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time, it's going to be a little painful. Did you bring your Bible to church this morning? In the lobby for overflow. Can we hear y'all out there? Love (laughs) y'all. Hold them up. Hold them up. Birmingham, can we hear you? We can't hear you. Lake Martin, you too. Huntsville, you too. I see some of Huntsville. Are y'all right here? Are y'all attending today? Okay, cool. Yeah, they're right in the middle. They're not with you. They're with us. But next week, they'll be with you. Now, you would think, hold them up. You would think, you would think, after three months in the book of Daniel, surely we're going to the New Testament, right? Surely we're going to cross over to the stuff we really understand. No, 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 no. Don't jump the gun. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. It's all about Jesus, Genesis to Revelation, and it's all useful for teaching and correcting and will change your life if you let it. Isaiah chapter 30. I promise we'll get to the New Testament in the coming weeks. Isaiah 30. One of the most notable chapters in the entire book of Isaiah. In a lot of ways, Isaiah is structured like your Bible is. Your Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are largely about the judgment of God's people. The first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, and then 27 new. In Isaiah 40, there's a seismic shift that happens where God comforts his people and offers to forgive their sins. And so really, Isaiah is framed a lot of the way your Bible is framed. But in that section on judgment, there's this little chapter, Isaiah chapter 30, that gives us an insight into something that was happening in Israel's history directly related to our unwillingness to rest and let God be God. Here's what was happening. There was a king ruling Judah at the time named Hezekiah. If you don't know anything about him, he's a good king. He has a really sad ending to his life, but for the most part, he follows God faithfully. I preached an entire sermon about Hezekiah a couple of years ago. It was called, I Have Heard Your Prayer. It's all about the life of Hezekiah. You can find it on our podcast if you want to know more about him. Such an awesome guy, but such a brutal, prideful ending to his life. You should check that one out. It was called, Even Now, it was a series, Even Now, I Have Heard Your Prayer. So Hezekiah is ruling over Judah, and there's an active threat against the people of God from this group in the north called the Assyrians. Assyria was brutal. They'd roll in, wipe out your civilization, take you to be a part of them, a lot like the Babylonians were when we read about in Daniel. And so they're feeling this pressure from the north that, hey, if they attack us, we need to have a plan for what to do. And so the leaders of Israel decide, let's just make an alliance with Egypt. If you know geography, Israel is like in between where the Assyrians were ruling and then Egypt is in the south. So let's go to Egypt and let's offer to give them like goods and services and then they can offer us to help with their military and it'll be like a good exchange. And so if we get attacked, they'll come to our aid. Here's the thing. God had promised Israel that the threats from Assyria would come to nothing as long as they were faithful to trust in him. And their alliance that they made with Egypt, they did so without inquiring of the Lord, which is a big deal in the Old Testament. 
You make a step like that, an alliance with another nation, without ever going before the Lord, you have stepped outside the bounds of what God has called you to. Maybe he would have called you to make the alliance, or maybe if you inquired of him, he would have said through the prophets, "Uh uh-uh, trust me, stay right where you are. And so this is God pronouncing judgment on his people because instead of staying still where they were and trusting in God, they wanted to run to Egypt and get get help from the south. Isaiah chapter 30, we're going to start in verse 15. If you're there, say I'm there. I'm going to read from the ESV today because I love the way they they word some of this. And you can tell right off the bat. It says, for thus, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no. We will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Let's go back to the beginning real quick. Thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, that word returning has a footnote, it's the word repentance, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. If you caught church at home last week, I quoted this verse, talking about our journey together as a church and inviting us to do this at God's pace and to be faithful every step of the way to let God be God and let's let him define the steps of our journey. I hope you were encouraged by that. But what I did not tell you last week was the context of this statement. When you're reading the scriptures, you can't just grab something that sounds good outside of the context to make yourself feel better. you got to see it. How, how did God say it? In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But, same verse, you were unwilling. You see that? So this is what was available to you, but you didn't want it. In other words, God is saying you were never supposed to run to Egypt for help with the threat of Assyria. You were just supposed to stay still, let me be God, let me be faithful to keep my word to you. In repentance, like stay repentant of your sin and rest in who I am. Your strength doesn't come from running to another nation. Your strength comes from the fact that you can be quiet and trust me to be God and live your life. But you are unwilling. No, 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 no. You didn't want to sit still and experience the peace that I offer. You wanted to run to Egypt. And what does he say? He says, you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. Do you hear the judgment? You're going to trust in horses? Okay. The very thing you're trusting in instead of me will become the thing that chases you down that you should be afraid of. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee. Oh, this is so good. God is saying, because you shifted your trust from me to them, the threat to you is not even the people that are chasing you, but your inner fear of something that's not even real. He says, a thousand will flee at the threat of one. It means like one of them's going to show up, and a thousand of you who could easily take them are going to run away. What does that signify? That signifies a level of internal anxiety that's not in touch with reality. God's going, your shifting of your trust is going to cause an inner turmoil that's not even reflective of the real situation that you're in and you're running for your life. But then a shift happens in verse 18. God goes from pronouncing judgment 
to an invitation of mercy. And you'll see this all throughout the Old Testament. One of the ways you can know that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same God is that so many opportunities for God to further his pronouncement of judgment are invitations where he relents and invites the people of God to experience his grace in a new way. They're all over the Old Testament. This is just one of them, but I gotta be honest, this is one of my favorite. This is absolutely beautiful. Therefore, so in light of the fact that you don't trust me and you trust them, in light of the fact that it's going to cause anxiety for you and you to run for your life and miss out on what I gave you, therefore, here's what I'm gonna do. Watch God, watch how awesome our God is. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. We had hundreds of college students gathered hours away last weekend, committed to doing the very thing described in this passage. Eliminate the idols that take them captive from their life. And the main idol that got elevated through their time together that we saw across the board for 18 to 25-year-olds is the very topic of conversation that we're talking about today. The turmoil that happens on the inside from living in a culture that stimulates you beyond the level that you were called to. Let's go back to the beginning and look at what God offers instead of what culture offers. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. This is an invitation for the people of God to experience the grace of God in the moment, but more than it's that, this is a futuristic prophecy. This is Isaiah going, hey, even though these people are going to run away to Egypt and miss out on what God has for them, the Lord is willing to wait to be gracious to his people. And my favorite verse in all of this Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. How beautiful is that? God exalts himself to extend mercy. That means that the glory of God and the mercy of God are two sides of the same coin. And a better way of putting it would be this. There's a direct relationship between the glory of God going up and the mercy of God coming down. God is exalted to extend mercy. It means... That God high in heaven, holy on the throne, the song that we were singing earlier in this gathering, the context of that happening in our eyes is also one that extends mercy where the people of God are willing to return to the Lord. God exalts himself to show mercy. That means that what makes Jesus look as awesome as he looks is the mercy that he extends to sinners like you and me. You need to know today, if you've been running yourself into the ground, if you've found that your soul is unrecognizable and your mind's all over the place and your feelings are all over the place and your will has been so disorganized lately, the invitation of God today is not, you did it wrong, let me punish you. The invitation of God today is, I exalt myself to show mercy to you. 
If you're far from God this morning, good news. Our God is a God of mercy. It is the most natural expression of who he is. And that mercy has been extended to you just by being within the sound of my voice right now. God loves you so much. God is drawing you closer and closer to himself. And there is not a morning that you wake up if you are in Christ where God is as far away as your sin or your feelings are telling you he is. That is a lie. You've got to eliminate the lie and replace it. What's true? He longs to be gracious. It means like, if you think of the natural inclination of God toward his people, it's not, I can't wait to punish them for missing it. It's, I can't wait to be gracious and offer another opportunity of mercy and a pathway to redemption. Come on, God hasn't quit on you. God's got so much more for you. And that's so easy to preach to people who are new. If you're here for the first time and you're like, wow, this is like God's available to me, that's amazing. Most of you who are believers listening to me are thinking about them and not yourself right now. And you need to let that mercy extend to someone who's known Jesus for 15 years and maybe has backslidden the last five. Who has been in the church your whole life but hasn't gotten serious about really spending time in the word of God and in prayer. You need to know that mercy is not a one-time mercy for when you commit your life to Jesus. It is a new morning mercy every day for the believer who's willing to bow in the presence of Jesus. It's available. It's yours. He exalts himself to show mercy. And then it says this, as soon as he hears you, he will answer. You are always one prayer away from communion with God. It's right there. And I know for many of us, the road of repentance is long with a lot of healing and a lot of apologies and a lot of amends. Yes. But I think part of the reason why we fail to return and to rest in God is because we think that road back is so long and treacherous. Could it be that as soon as God hears the words, Jesus, help me, come off of your lips, he responds in power. I was so, oh, so convicted about this, and I was not going to tell this story, but I know she's going to listen to this, so I have to. My wife's going to be like, you're going to tell the story, right? I got increasingly frustrated with the timing of how we were going to have our baby and this is very selfish for me to confess, but I was like, I just, I just want to know. And we're not inducing this time. We induced the first two. But I was like, she wants to go natural, and that's fine. But, like, we're, this is like, we're juggling a lot between kids and church and schedules. And, like, I, I just, I, I love the idea of control. I love the idea of knowing. And I know it's very, you're like, she's the one having the baby, dude. Believe me, I know. I've repented. Um, <laughs> but on Monday night, March 21st, before we went to bed, she asked me one of the most convicting questions. She said, have you even prayed? Have you even asked God to help me have this baby naturally? And I was like, I've schemed and planned and tried to create timetables and moved a lot of things around, but no, I haven't, I haven't gone to God. One flippant prayer as I fall asleep, God, help my wife to go into labor naturally. Wake up the next morning. It's happening. And I don't say that to go, God is a magic wand to create the circumstances that you've been. No, I'm just saying for so many of us, including me, you don't even realize the relational rest that's available by talking to the God of the universe. Like open your mouth, say something to him. Stop indulging in all the information and all of your schemes and your plans and just like cry out to him. I think God's calling out his people there and going, so you're going to run to Egypt and like, 
not say anything to the one who parted the sea when Egypt was chasing you in your own history? You're not going to come to me? You're not, you're not going to just even ask me or inquire of me? Wow, as soon as he hears it, he will come to you. And then this, this prophecy about Jesus is so beautiful. Then there's going to be a day where your teacher will come, and he will teach you this way. This is the way. Walk in it. And Jesus, as a rabbi with disciples, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, when Jesus makes that statement, we're so quick to rush to theological conclusions that we go, yeah, Jesus is the only way to God. And that's true. He is the only way to God. But Jesus was not saying that, saying, you got to believe in only me to be saved. He was also saying that to go, watch the way I live my life and live yours likewise. I'm the way. This is the way. Walk in it. Now, they didn't have the benefit of knowing that when Isaiah chapter 30 was originally transcribed, but we're reading this through the lens of New Testament believers and going, wait, that teacher did come, and I am one of his disciples. And I believe the primary disconnect, the primary way that we have gotten comfortable living in open rebellion to our rabbi, to the Son of God, is by completely neglecting and ignoring his command to live life the way he lived his life. We go, well, that contextually, like that's 2,000 years ago. He didn't have the life that we have. Guys, his mission was to save the human race. He had a much bigger set of responsibilities and priorities than you and I have. And yet he modeled for us a way of living his life that was very centered around what? Rhythm. Getting away with God and doing for God. You watch in the gospel narratives alone Jesus' commitment to when something major is demanded of him disappears to get alone with his father. And it's not that he doesn't meet the demands or sometimes overextend himself to provide for people because he does. It's that he understands, okay, my ministry's beginning. I just got baptized. I heard from heaven that God approves of me. I am his son and I'm ready to walk in all this. What does he do? Disappears for 40 days. If any of us had that glowing of an endorsement coming from the voice of heaven, we would be all over social media and everyone who can see it. Did you hear the news? I'm God's child. He actually said it out loud. You can, I put it in a reel. And, uh, and you can watch it again and again. What does Jesus do? He goes, great. In light of what's going to be demanded of me, I'm going to need to be at my strongest, which comes from communion with God. I think the primary disconnect that we have with the way of Jesus is that we are not walking in quietness and trust. If you needed a title for this sermon, by the way, that's what it's called, Quietness and Trust. Um, and, in, and when we talk about Selah, I'm talking about a rhythm to your life that goes back to that place where God is God and you are not, where you take a breath, where you get quiet, where you get alone, and you let God fill you so that your whole life is not spent pouring out an empty cup. Quietness and trust. Now, here's why we don't do that. If you jumped into Isaiah 30 and you asked Israel, hey, guys, I know things are not easy, but if your God is offering you to like sit here and do nothing, or make a treaty with Egypt and run for your life on horses, and either way, you're not going to be taken over by the Assyrians, which one, why don't you guys just sit still? Like, why don't you just trust him, be quiet, repent, and rest? Like, it definitely seems a lot easier. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember Jesus said that. It definitely seems like his way is easier and less burdensome for you than your way. Do you know what their response would be? 
it would be, oh, it, it does sound easier. Here's the thing. The pressure from Assyria is real. We have heard what they are doing to the other nations. We have heard how quickly this happens. We have heard about how they punish people. So yes, we'd love to sit here and do nothing and rest and believe that God is God. But Assyria is real. And you take that into our context and it's like, you can almost copy and paste the narrative with different details to the story. If I asked you, why is your life not set up with a more healthy rhythm of time alone with God and time at school or time at work and time where you have to be on? If I asked you that, the answer would be simple, pressure. And not like fake pressure, real. Like Assyria was really doing these things and really could have attacked Israel from the north. You don't ignore the threat when you read the Bible and go, well, you had God, you could have escaped it. No, the pressure is real and the struggle is there. So if I ask some of you, it's like, I want to get healthy. I don't know how to get this under control. I don't know how to stop scrolling to distract myself from all the responsibilities that I'm called to. I don't know how to manage this many kids' schedules that are all over the place. I don't know how to even go to church. Some of you college students who are in church right now, high schoolers, even middle schoolers, you can barely focus as I talk because you're thinking about the homework and the studying you have to do before you go to bed tonight. Like you're going, I can't be in the house of God. I got microbiology over here, or physics. I'm just naming stuff that is stressful for me to even say out loud. Like, not, not like fun stuff like history, but, but like I saw someone in, a, someone in our lobby, it was an LDP this week, was studying, and I was like, what, are you, uh, what is this equation on this sheet of paper? And she was like, I'm in a class called um, the formation of heat, I think it was called. I was like, oh, well, when I was in college, we took science. Um, like, you're in the formation of heat? Like, I didn't know that was a thing. And I'm looking at this equation, and I'm going, no wonder you guys are so stressed out all the time. And so, like, at the end of yourself, the pressure that's hitting us is actually real. But here's the revelation. If you have missed everything I've said in this sermon so far, you need to look up here right now. Because this is from, like, the bottom of my soul and stuff I have gone through personally. The revelation of Isaiah 30, and the revelation that I have learned in my life personally is that you cannot continue to allow the reasons for not getting your soul healthy and at rest to become an excuse for taking the initiative to be obedient to Christ. It's been no secret, last couple of years have been difficult for me to practice what I'm preaching to you today. Right before the pandemic hit in 2020, that was as bad as things got related to anxiety for me. Luckily, the last couple of years, I've been able to change some rhythms and put a lot of things into place, but this is definitely a work that's happening over time. What God revealed as I kind of went under the hood of, hey, why do I keep burning myself out? Why do I keep having this tendency to overdo it, to overprocess, to like not really rest in the presence of God? And I found a lie at the bottom of my struggle. Remember, spiritual warfare is not demons in the sky that you need to figure out. It's lies and truth. So when you get a breakthrough spiritually, it's usually when you notice something that you've agreed to for a while and you go, hold on, that's a lie. That's actually not true. That's actually not there. And so I wrote this in my journal. I want to share it with you today. I wrote, I cannot continue to blame the state of my soul on the state of my circumstances. I cannot continue to blame the state of my soul on the state of my circumstances. So here's what I do. I take a limited level of responsibility for the state of my soul, but I blame it on how much is on me. Yeah, I know I was short with that staff member, but, but they understand that like, I have this many sermons to prepare and this many people to meet with and this many responsibilities at home. Like, it, I, it, I am sorry, 
But I was always holding on through that to, but I do have this much on me. And so it kind of creates a pass for the way my soul is. I believe the reason why Israel wasn't at rest was because Assyria was threatening. And they're going, hey, we would rest. But God, that's a real threat. And that's really happening. And I believe the reason for me and the reason for you that we don't live a life with the rhythm of Selah is because we're so quick to go, my circumstances are the reason for my soul being this way. Here's the revelation. Assyria threatening is not an excuse to run to Egypt. Assyria threatening is not an excuse to run to Egypt. Let me translate that in 2022. Living in 2022 is not an excuse to be addicted to your phone. Making a lot of money is not an excuse to cheat on priorities. Having a demanding schedule is not an excuse to miscommunion with Jesus. Having kids with a lot of activities is not an excuse to not root your life in the house of God. And I'm just naming things that are coming to the top of my head. You could probably name a hundred more. Here's what we've done. Here's what you've done. I've said a lot and taken a lot of responsibility in this talk. I want to put this on y'all. You have taken excuses about how much has on you and translated that as the reason why you don't walk according to the rhythms of Jesus. And I'm point blank telling you, you are sinning. It is wrong. You have to change. And I'm telling you firmly because I believe this is the road that leads to you blowing up your future. This is the road that leads to you blowing up your family. We talk so much about the moral issues of scripture that are a big deal, but part of the reason why moral failings happen on such a magnified level is because years are spent with poor rhythms and then terrible decisions are made in the context of exhaustion. Most people who blow up their life do so because they are completely overwhelmed and they're not themselves, and they make decisions that they look back on and go, I don't even know what was going on with me. I do. You missed out on what was necessary and what was essential for you. You have to stop letting your family schedule, your schedule, your life be dictated by the pressure that's coming down, and you have to start letting your rhythms be dictated by the fact that you are a child of God. You are not God. You are called to be in humble submission to the ways of Jesus. And I just think we've neglected what's most important. I want you to get your soul healthy. And when I talk about soul, I always got to clarify what that means. Put those three words on the screen. Your soul is the combination of your mind, your will, and your emotions. So we talk about having a healthy soul. We're talking about what you think about, what you feel, and what you do. All of that makes up the truest version of who you are. It's not just your physical body, but it's the, the true demonstration of who you are. If there was a magical machine to get all of these three things healthy, I would pay whatever amount of money it costs to buy it. Literally thinking that the other day, I was watching Mickey Mouse Funhouse. It's a new one. Um, it used to be Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which is still there, but they came out with a new one on Disney Plus called Funhouse, and so I was watching it with Anderson and Elliot. These are where I get my sermon illustrations these days, guys. There was a day where they were cooler and more like on, on brand, but now it's Mickey Mouse Funhouse. But it was on, it was on a weekend. We don't give our, our kids unlimited screen time. It's only on weekends that they, that, and, and we stick to that. I, my wife sticks to that. I, I'm more bendable. By the way, the limitations I'm talking about that you need to put on your life are also limitations you need to put on your kids, but that's another sermon for another day. You're allowed to, by the way. Um, and, uh, but, but I'm watching Mickey Mouse Funhouse, and Mickey made this machine where you could take the cars that they were driving, and it would automatically not just wash and clean them, but optimize them. So it, it made them like the best version of what they were created to be in seconds. And I'm watching this, and I'm going, that's what I need for my soul. 
Like, I need a machine that I can walk in, and all of a sudden, within minutes, my mind, my will, and emotions, like years of processing with a counselor about my family of origin can be done, and, 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 I, and I can get like an unlimited amount of sleep and good nutrition and, and, and like have all these rhythms that need to be in place over time, but just happen in seconds. I'm watching this, and I'm going, that's exactly what I need. That's exactly what I need. I want my soul to be healthy so bad. Here's the thing. When you read the scriptures, that is not the way it happens. When you invite the Holy Spirit to fill you, and Jesus is now the Lord of your life, your soul does get healthy, but it does not happen in a magical moment where the Holy Spirit just flips a switch. It happens over time through this thing called rhythm. Rhythm. And as you spend your life in the rhythm of doing what? Coming to Jesus, he transforms you over time. Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. At the end of that passage, Jesus says, I'll give you rest for your souls. When Jesus invites you to come to him, he's not just inviting you to a nap and a vacation. He's inviting you to remember, I'm the God of the universe, the God who forgives your sin, and I've got a better way to live your life than what you are doing. And so there are a lot of rhythms that you need to put into place in your life. I just picked two from straight out of Isaiah chapter 30 that I want to become regular rhythms for our people and that I believe are part of the reason why so many of us have become so off. I got two, and I got a couple of minutes left. Are y'all still with me? Is this helpful? Okay, two rhythms to put into place. Number one, a rhythm of repentance. A rhythm of repentance. What did it say? In repentance and rest is your salvation. This word repent has become butchered. It either in our context means like some kind of doom and gloom, fire and brimstone, like repent or you're going to hell. Or for a lot of us who have been in church for a while, it started to become synonymous with confession. And some of us have such a small view of repentance that we think it's either the thing that we did when we originally committed our lives to Christ and got baptized, or it's what we do when we confess our sins to God, which is part of it. But some of us have gone years without truly repenting because the definition of repent is not just to acknowledge that you sinned and that you're sad about it, but to in your heart firmly decide to turn and trust in Jesus. Repentance is a, I'm going this way, but now I'm going to turn and face my life this way. And, and I think even at ACC, when we talk about repentance, I want you to know we're not talking about thinking back on what you've done wrong lately and saying sorry to God. We're thinking back to a heartfelt repentance that goes, God, I don't want to do this my way anymore, and I'm turning back to you. And that repentance, it's not a one-time thing. It's not a once-a-week thing. It should be the automatic posture of your heart when you wake up in the morning. God, I know I've got stuff that I've taken into my own hands. And in my flesh, I've taken ownership over things that I was not called to. And you gotta create a rhythm of your life of actually going, I've gotta repent and it's painful. I've gotta turn myself back to being obedient to Christ. Here's what this looks like. This is so, this is so deep. It looks like saying no to a lot of things you wanna say yes to so that you can say a better yes to Jesus. And so that you can say a better yes to the long-term health of your soul and marriage and future. Rest is such an attraction, uh, attractive thing to talk about right now because everybody's exhausted. So you start preaching this message. I know when people talk today, Miles is preaching on rest. So many people are going to go, oh, I, wanna, I need that. I'm exhausted. What did he say? What did he say? But we always talk about it like it's this, this good thing that's fun. 
yes, I need that. No, 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 it's actually really painful because to truly get it, you gotta repent. And to repent, you gotta say no to things you really wanna say yes to. You gotta be willing to say no to some of your kids' activities that seem like a good idea. You gotta be willing to say no to what might be a decent thing on the surface to say yes to the ultimate thing, which is making sure your soul has joy and is filled in the presence of God. And, and so I wanted to talk about repentance before rest because I, I want us to clarify, this is going to be a little brutal for you and for me. I talked about last week in church at home, this summer's the first time I'm taking a sabbatical, six weeks of not being here. And, and I'm not doing that because I'm exhausted and I need a break. I'm doing that because I still want to be the pastor of this church in 30 years. And I'm realizing that I have over-processed my brain and my spiritual faculties, if you will, are off. There are things about listening to God that I cannot do when I'm alone with God right now because for eight years I have taken the fertile soil of what God gifted me with and I've scorched it. I've preached too many times. I've written too many things. I've been in too many meetings. I have done too much. And so it's not a, oh, I get six weeks off, six weeks off to catch my breath and be with my family. No, no, it's a painful, this is going to kill me to not be up here preaching the word of God. And what you realize when you start to repent in this area is you realize the idol that's underneath your activity. So your activity isn't just about being distracted and overstimulated. No, no, no. It's about what you need to feel like you're worth anything, which is what we're gonna talk about next week. That when you actually start saying no to some of these activities and you go, well, what am I, what am I gonna replace all that activity with? What am I gonna do if, I, if we say no to this, this, and this? Here's a good word. Margin. You were not created to fill 100% of your capacity with 100% of activity. And some of you are at like 200%. Like what if there was a part of your life that was like, what are you doing? Nothing. That's what Selah means. What are you thinking about? I'm trying not to think about anything. Like I, when people ask me, what are you doing on sabbatical? Not writing sermons. That's your assignment? Yeah, it's gonna be hard. It's actually gonna be really, really hard for me because if we don't create that space for that downturn, our whole lives will be spent at the apex of that 10 in energy, 10 in stimulation. And I'm telling you, on the back end of that is a soul that is withered and can no longer sense the Holy Spirit. I do not wanna be up here shouting and using charisma to reach you and not be able to feel the Holy Spirit for myself. So you, you gotta keep this rhythm of God I've got to say no to things that I want to say yes to. And for my family, Sabbath is a part of this. Daily time with Jesus is a part of this. There's so many things that you could add on to this. Screen time is a part of this. But what does it look like for you to have a rhythm of turning from the way you were going and acknowledging? Like you might have to turn again from the same thing next week. And then the week after that and the week after that. But do not stop being persistent in your commitment to a rhythm of repentance. Lastly, number two, a rhythm of rest. A rhythm of rest. When God created the world, he initiated Sabbath to model the very thing that we're talking about today. We're made in the image of God. We are made to work. We are made to produce. We are made to enjoy life together. Like We are made to be on. But at the same time, there's a part of what God instills into creation. The only day he calls holy, he calls the Sabbath. And he invites people to remember this day is designed for you to admit with your schedule, not with your mouth, with your schedule, that I'm God and you're not. 
And a rhythm of rest is about returning to delighting in God so that your soul does not become weary over time. The mark, I've preached on this before, the mark of a weary soul is a hurried spirit. So if you're wondering today, how do I know if my soul is weary? How hurried are you on a daily basis? How in a hurry are you to get out of the house? How in a hurry are you to get things done? How in a hurry are you to finish conversations? Yeah, as I say it, I'm going, oh, this this is brutal. It's bad. But a rhythm of rest reminds you to slow down your soul long enough to return to communion with God and say yes to this invitation from Jesus. Here's what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. I just love when Jesus wants to qualify who he's looking for. He doesn't say, come to me, all you who are serious about doing everything I say. Come to me, all of you who are never gonna miss it. Come to me, all of you who are devoted enough. His invitation right here is come to me, all you who are just at the end of yourself, weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I can't tell you all the practical ways that this message should play out for you specifically, but I do know this. It's as simple as the first three words of Matthew 11, 28. Come to me. Israel's running for their life in Isaiah 30 because they went to Egypt instead of to their heavenly father. You are exhausted, you are overwhelmed, you are not yourself, you are weary because you are looking somewhere else and you need to come to Jesus again and again and again. We're gonna do that right now as we take communion. If you did not get a communion set in whatever location you're at and in this room, just raise your hand. I know we had a lot of people coming in at the end of the gathering and a lot of those sets need to be passed out. Try to get uh, some new communion sets. Uh, I think one side is kind of like an hourglass. One side is uh, the juice and one side is the bread. I'm gonna clarify what we're doing. Don't take it yet but I want these thoughts on our mind as we do this. The night before Jesus died, he held the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. He held the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. What we're doing is a visible picture of remembering that Jesus did for us what we can't do for ourselves. Why is rest and repentance such a necessary rhythm for my life? Because it's literally the pathway to remembering that Jesus alone does for you what you can't do for yourself. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, this moment is a great moment to do that. If you still didn't get one, you can raise your hand, by the way. I feel like we might have forgotten a couple people. Third row over here, I see that hand. Um, I've gotten really good at seeing hands, okay? They train you for that early in seminary. I knew we had a couple of them out there that were still. If you're in another location, you need to. You can do that as well. But this is a moment for us to go back to the basics. Remember the blood. Remember Jesus' body. Thank him that you had no part to play in your salvation. All, your only part is thankfulness and gratitude. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, we would encourage you to do that during this time. This is y'all's time to take communion. Husbands, as always, pray over your wives. And uh, I think Matt, Matt's gonna come up here and just sing a song over this time. We don't really want anybody joining in with this first song. He'll invite us back once he wants us to jump in, but let's just be still and let these words wash over us as we take communion.